Hello, I'm Dr. Miriam Hanna, and this is The Allergist, a show that separates myth from medicine, deciphering allergies and understanding the immune system. On this side of the bench, I hear a lot of stories about allergic reactions. Each story is retold by the family when they're coming to the clinic. So some stories follow a sequence and others are just like fragments of events, emotions, questions, and even more emotions. This one I'm going to tell you about was a young girl. She coughed when she reacted, kind of sporadically. Rash started to appear, pop, 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 hives everywhere and her stomach started to hurt. In her case, she had seasonal allergies and some asthma, and maybe it was just a flare. Minutes passed by, she's getting worse. They had listed one reaction after the other in the past. That one wasn't bad, that one was a little scary, but this one, this time, was by far the worst. They had told me before, they managed them all through a combination of observation and often with an antihistamine. Benadryl, they would tell me. We use the other ones for seasonal allergies, but that's our go-to. What about epinephrine, I had asked them before. Oh no, if she were to get worse, then we would use it. It's dangerous, no? Then we'd have to call an ambulance. I can't stand just sitting in the hospital for another one of this many hours or just sitting there. It's really never been that terrible. But this last time they told me about, this last story, it was just awful. A nervous laugh. Then they avoid my gaze, and we pause for a moment and think. Anaphylaxis, a severe, life-threatening, allergic reaction, and the crippling factors that make patients, parents, and bystanders process while they watch the whole story unfold. The more knowledgeable they are, the harder I grapple to understand what happened, like where are the roadblocks. Today's episode was inspired by those families. Too many to actually tell you about but especially the ones gripped with fear that the moment that they would need to act, they might avoid, delay, or just freeze. In August 2023, the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology released guidance for allergists and immunologists entitled Considerations for At-Home Management of Food-Induced Anaphylaxis. We are pleased to welcome lead author on this guidance, Dr. Alyssa Abrams, to today's episode. Dr. Alyssa Abrams is an associate professor at the University of Manitoba and holds an adjunct appointment at UBC. Dr. Abrams is president of the Allergy Section of the Canadian Pediatric Society, chair of the Food Allergy Anaphylaxis Section of the CSACI, and member of the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters. She has also published over 200 articles in peer-reviewed journals and co-authored over 15 allergy practice guidelines through the CPS and the CSACI, including the CSACI's most recent guidance. Dr. Abrams, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Abrams, I'm really excited about today's conversation, if you can't tell already, but I think we have to start with the basics. So can we go back? What is anaphylaxis? So that's a great question, and it's actually not a basic one. Anaphylaxis has some things that are very straightforward and some things that are actually a lot more complicated. So 
Anaphylaxis in general is an immediate life-threatening or potentially life-threatening reaction. It often happens after you've been exposed to an allergen and it usually goes away pretty quickly. It usually resolves quickly. But what becomes much more complicated are the underlying mechanisms of anaphylaxis. So we often think anaphylaxis is IgE mediated. You know, a typical allergy cell is triggered by an allergen. And that's often the case, for example, for foods. But anaphylaxis can be immune or non-immune mediated. There are actually many different mechanisms by which anaphylaxis can happen. Mind blown, non-immune ways by which anaphylaxis can happen. So how how have things changed over time? Like how has our understanding of anaphylaxis and things about anaphylaxis progressed, let's say over the past decade? What's been different? Sure. So I think some things have stayed relatively the same. And I suspect we'll talk a little bit about those, including how you treat anaphylaxis. What I think we're increasingly learning is that while anaphylaxis can be life-threatening, and of course you have to recognize and treat anaphylaxis quickly, the actual risk of mortality is very, very low. You're looking in the order of one to 10 per million, like it's, it's low, low numbers. And so because we're recognizing that, we're starting to say, you know, maybe there are different ways that we can approach how we manage anaphylaxis compared to say 10 years ago. Hmm. So... You, you talk about kind of what hasn't changed in managing anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. So even though our risk of dying is, I've also heard it compared to being struck by lightning and yeah. dying. So yeah, that, that one always right. resonates. That's about right. Yeah. Yep. It's actually. Uh, I grew up in Alberta. So I, I've seen people get <laughs> struck by lightning and live. So the struck by lightning and dying is always shocking to me. Yes. Um, so like why epinephrine then? Right. So epinephrine is the only life-saving intervention that we can do for anaphylaxis. It helps the heart. It helps the respiratory system. It causes vasoconstriction. People often think that a lot of the adjunct measures that we use for anaphylaxis, you know, antihistamines, steroids may have a role to play, but really the management of anaphylaxis is pretty straightforward. The only thing that works and is a life-saving intervention is epinephrine. Is it safe? Like, what if the kid isn't really in anaphylaxis? Is it safe to give epinephrine? Yeah, so that's also an easy answer. It's yes. The answer is always that it is safe. It There is like no contraindication to using it ever, even in children with cardiac disease. Serious adverse events are incredibly, incredibly rare if it's used correctly. It is always safe. The symptoms that you get from it, you know, pallor, tremor, palpitations are similar to a flight or fight response. And your body is naturally producing epinephrine when you're having an allergic reaction. So yes, it is always safe to use. So if not every reaction progresses to death, and we said that that's Mm -hmm. very unlikely or uncommon, does every reaction need epinephrine? I find that's a hard topic to discuss with families. It is a hard topic to discuss. And It is a bit of a gray area. So I would say, yes, if it's true anaphylaxis, and there are different ways you can define anaphylaxis, but for example, if there's two body systems that are affected, if the child has low blood pressure, then the answer is yes, I would always use epinephrine. I also say, although this would vary, I imagine allergist by allergist, if you're ever in a remote location, that you should always use epinephrine, even if you're not sure, just because it can take a little bit longer to get medical help if you need it. If it's a milder reaction, so for example, hives only or facial hives only, that's a bit of a grayer area. But once again, the short answer is if you're ever thinking, should I use an auto injector or epinephrine or should I not? 
the answer is always, yes, you should use it. It's always safe and it may be life life saving. So a lot of times I have families that end up in the emergency department when they're trying to debate, like, are they reacting? Are they not? Mm -hmm. Is this bad? Is this not? And in the end, they get a dose of steroids, observation, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Does steroids help in the management of anaphylaxis? What's changed about that? So this is, when we're looking at management of anaphylaxis, one of the things that's changed. And there are more and more studies that don't show that steroids really make any difference at all. And in fact, increasingly guidelines are coming out and saying, don't bother using them. They don't help the immediate reaction. They take a long time to kick in. And people used to use steroids thinking they may help prevent a secondary or biphasic reaction. And increasingly there are studies that show it doesn't even really do that. So no, there isn't great evidence for the use of steroids in anaphylaxis. So then antihistamines, you've mentioned kind of antihistamines, mm-hmm. maybe they're having a mild reaction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this also happens, the Benadryl word. <laughs> I think we have to talk about Benadryl. We can't have a good discussion. Let's talk so, about Benadryl. All right. So our emergency department is like, first, A is for airway, B is for Benadryl. Is that correct? <laughs> should we even be saying that now? So no, we should not be saying that. I would say B is for bad. I I do not like any first-generation antihistamine. So the reason that, in general, we're actually moving very far away from first-generation antihistamines like Benadryl is that they cross the blood-brain barrier. They cause sedation. They interfere with cognitive function. They have poor sleep quality. And also, you know, one of the symptoms of anaphylaxis is sedation. If you give Benadryl and a child gets tired, I find it's hard to differentiate. Is this a worsening reaction or just the side effect of the medication? You know, there's been some really interesting work. If you look at, for example, car crashes, they don't measure Benadryl or other first-generation antihistamines in the blood, but the Civil Aerospace Medical Institute does. And they actually found over, I think it was about 15 years, 6% of fatal airplane crashes were related to first-generation antihistamines being in the bloodstream. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. But I still have, like, I, I promise you, they still come in and they say, we carry yes. this non-sedating yes. for all of our other issues. Oh, and we yeah. carry this just for food allergy reactions. Yeah. And this has been studied and it, and it's been shown that physicians, pharmacists, patients will often choose it. It's one of the oldest antihistamines. It's been one of the best studied, but unfortunately that doesn't mean it's one of the best. And even, you know, for other allergic conditions like rhinitis. I I don't like it because it's been shown to reduce cognitive performance, for example, in school the next day because it's Mm -hmm. so sedating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, The CSACI some years ago released Mm -hmm. guidance on that. Yeah, and they did. I I find that the uptake and implementation of it has been slow. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. Do you know, have you given some thought as to like barriers as to what has been the barrier with this kind of guidance? Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't have a great answer there. You know, I think sometimes established patterns are established patterns. It's been around forever. It's approved in a very young age range. It's the most studied in very, very young children. And I think that may be one of the barriers, but Mm -hmm. I have the exact same experience. I have families coming in all the time choosing first-generation antihistamines. Interesting. Yeah. All right. All right. So the real reason, no, the the other reason people tell me they're going to the emergency department is they're monitoring for this biphasic reaction. Mm-hmm. A lot of knowledge has kind of come about this mm-hmm. real incidence of biphasic mm-hmm. reactions. Can you explain first what it is and then give us some ideas as to what's changed in this space? 
Sure. So a biphasic reaction basically means you've had an allergic reaction, it has completely gotten better, and then it comes back. And the time interval in which it comes back is somewhere between 1 to 72 hours after the initial reaction has resolved. When you look at how common it is, you know, older studies would say 5 to 20%. And this was part of the prolonged observation in the emergency room after an allergic reaction was to see, are they going to have a secondary reaction? We're now seeing much lower numbers in the range of anywhere from at the top 5% to in some studies in kids, less than 1% have biphasic reactions. The other thing that's changed that has, I think, helped us a lot is that we now have some better predictors of who's at risk of a biphasic reaction. So when we're looking at, at a child, we can say, is this child really at higher risk? Do we have to watch them for an extended period of time? And in general, an easy rule of thumb is if the reaction has been severe or if they've had biphasic anaphylaxis in the past, they're at higher risk of having it again. Are there any other risk factors that people should know about for increasing your chance of having a biphasic reaction? So those are the two big ones that I know of. Basically, if they've had a severe initial reaction, if they've needed multiple doses of epinephrine, or if they've had a biphasic reaction in the past. There are other risk factors for severe anaphylaxis. Like, for example, if a child has asthma, that always worries me. If they have cardiovascular disease, that's always a concern. Or if they have mastocytosis. So those would be other kids you'd want to watch more closely. Do you have a sense of how good we're doing as a general population in managing anaphylaxis? We talked about challenges with the definition, yeah. but like how well are we saying like that's anaphylaxis and it's treated properly? Right. Well, I do know of some studies looking more at, at how often epinephrine is being used, mostly mm -hmm. in the community. And I think the general theme there, and it probably largely applies, is that it's vastly underutilized. For a variety of reasons. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect segue to talk about the CSACI statement. So under the direction of lead author Dr. Abrams, once again, the CSACI released their first of its kind guidance for allergists and immunologists entitled Considerations for At-Home Management of Food-Induced Anaphylaxis. This guidance gets people talking whenever I've brought it up with families. It's mm -hmm. almost like I've removed a ball and chain off their auto injector. Yes, yes. Tell me why was this guidance drafted to begin with? Okay, so this guidance started during COVID and it started in the U.S. And it was largely a way to keep families that didn't need to be in the hospital out of the hospital. There are a variety of factors and reasons why that was really important at that particular time. But, you know, even as we move past that, there are many reasons why this statement may be helpful. The first is, as you've mentioned, that paradoxically, having to go to the hospital has been shown to be a barrier to using epinephrine. We know that epinephrine is the only life-saving intervention, and we want to make sure families use it. And the going to the emergency room is not because you use epinephrine. It's to monitor for those biphasic reactions, which we're seeing are less and less common. We can largely predict them. And the fatalities from biphasic anaphylaxis are also exceptionally rare. And once again, the best way to prevent them is to use epinephrine. So the goal in an allergic reaction is that you don't have to be seen, and we, I'm sure we'll get into this, in general, if an allergic reaction is getting better. The goal is to use epinephrine quickly. Hmm. Does... Does this apply to like all ages? I know we've said families and kids before, but like, is mm -hmm. there is there a specific age range that we're aiming for with this kind of guidance? Is it all ages? 
So there is no specific age, although I'm always a little bit more cautious with infants just because or or pre-verbal or less verbal children. But no, it is meant to include all ages. And why is it just food? I mean, we've said that it is just for food a few times. Why why just food? What's different about your evidence (laughs) for food versus others? Yep. So the evidence isn't different. But most families that have food allergic children have auto injectors available and usually have the education about how to use it and when to use it. Okay. So what's the right family or what's the right circumstance where we should be guiding them to say, like, you know what? If if this happens, use your auto injector and don't dial 911 and don't go to the hospital. Okay. So the first is whether the family and the caregiver and the Um, physician is comfortable giving that advice. So any family should always still go into the emergency room if they're uncomfortable or if they're not sure about what to do. They always need to have at least two auto injectors if they're going to do this, because just in case there is that small chance of a biphasic reaction, you need to have a second or the acute reaction doesn't get better. You need to have a second auto injector available. And then they have to be low risk. So we've talked about this a little bit. And in general, what we mean by low risk is they shouldn't have a lot of comorbidities, in particular, cardiorespiratory disease or mastocytosis, and they shouldn't have had a severe reaction in the past. You know, a biphasic reaction, a severe reaction in the past. Also, they shouldn't be in a remote location. If they're more than 30 to 60 minutes from an emergency room, I'd say just go in. So how do you think this guidance is going to get taken up by the community? Like, what's going to happen? Is it going to be like this Benadryl statement and we're going to be stuck for like years on end? Or is this going to get adopted by the walk-in clinic and the primary care community? Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, so that remains to be seen. I mean, of course, my hope is that it gets adopted. I think it's going to take some education and it's going to take some time because, of course, anaphylaxis is potentially life-threatening. We want to make sure that we're very careful around management of it. On the other hand, we now really know that if you use epinephrine quickly and if the child is in general low risk, the risk of anything serious happening is quite low. I think for some physicians, for some patients, this, as you said, will be, you know, sort of removing the ball and chain from the auto injector and they'll say, oh, great, you know, the big barrier to me using it was having to go to the eMERGE. I think for other people, it might be a little bit disconcerting and it will take some time and some education. Tell me about internationally, these kinds of guidance, um, Mm -hmm. what exists around the world that's like this? So in the U.S., there now is some guidance. The Joint Task Force has put out something quite similar and said that you don't necessarily have to go into the emergency room. And it's been supported by the big sort of food allergy patient organization, patient advocacy organization in the U.S. as well. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is exciting times for anaphylaxis. Yes. Do you worry that if we say use your auto injector and just stay home, we're under emphasizing the importance of allergic reactions and the potential severity of the allergic reactions? You say just take it and just stay home. Yeah. And so that is the balance that we have to try to achieve, right? You know, the important thing is to use the auto injector, which is vastly underused. If going to the eMERGE is a barrier, don't go to the eMERGE as long as as the child is low risk and is getting better. But if the child is higher risk, if the child is not getting better, the right answer, or if you're not sure, the right answer is to always go into the hospital. Yeah. 
You know, the epinephrine auto-injector is like our insulin for the diabetes patients, mm-hmm. right? Like we mm-hmm. we get very comfortable with it and we really hope that guidance like this also makes it comfortable for families right. and being able to access this type of medication. So, you know, I applaud this kind of guidance coming out of the CSACI. It supports a lot of the work that allergists do on the front lines and have been recommending for some time. So we're going to try something here. So um, as we try to wrap up every episode, we ask um, the allergist of today, so that's you, Dr. Abrams, um, to give us your top three key messages that you'd want to impart to either patients and or physicians on today's topic about anaphylaxis. Okay. What do you have? So the most important, the primary takeaway is that epinephrine is the only life-saving intervention. And if you're ever thinking that there is an allergic reaction, it is always safe and should be used. The second one that I would say is not nearly as important, but is interesting and has been a change, is that the other therapies that we often use, like antihistamines and steroids, do not treat anything that is life-threatening, like closing of the airway or respiratory symptoms, and doesn't seem to prevent biphasic reactions. So you could use antihistamines for hives, for example, but these adjunct therapies that we often rely on do not treat an acute allergic reaction. The final one, which we've just talked about, is that at-home anaphylaxis management can be appropriate under very stringent circumstances. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Abrams, for joining us on The Allergist. We appreciate your time and your insight and actually, um, we're, we're booking to have you come again and join us again sometime soon. Well, I appreciate you having me. This podcast is produced by the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. The Allergist is produced for CSACI by Podcraft Productions. The views expressed by our guest are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Canadian Society. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners please visit www.csaci.ca for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. The Find an Allergist app on the website is a useful tool to locate an allergist in your area. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you download your podcasts and share it with your networks. Thanks for listening. Sincerely, The Allergist. The Allergist.